With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to a five-part series on supply chain data management. This series is sponsored by Ascent Compliance. Ascent Compliance provides cloud-based SaaS solutions that help companies manage their supply chain data, facilitate stakeholder and supply chain education on regulatory and program requirements, and increase transparency between businesses. Ascent helps companies overcome the challenge of meeting their compliance business requirements. Finally, Ascent streamlines the data exchange process for suppliers, making it easier for them to comply with their customers' data requests. For more information, check out their website, ascentcompliance.com. In this five-part podcast series, I visit with several members of the Ascent Compliance team to introduce the topic of market access, consider what it is, an overview of trade compliance, how federal acquisition regulations, FARs, flowdowns affect supply chain compliance, the value of continuous monitoring, and the origins of laws impacting market access. The fascinating exploration of a topic that compliance practitioners need to be aware of. In this fifth and final episode, I visit with James Calder, and we take a look at chemical and product compliance and how lessons learned from there will help the supply chain professional in market access and trade compliance. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again for another episode in our five-part exploration. Today, I have with me James Calder. He's the Vice President, Compliance and Regulatory Programs at Ascent Compliance. James, first of all, uh, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to visit with me today. Well, thank you for having me on again, and as always, very appreciated to join you. So, James, today I wanted to uh, uh, really take a deep dive into the weeds on a topic that uh, I think has a lot of relevance for the supply chain practitioner, the compliance practitioner, the trade compliance practitioner, and a wide variety of others, and that is chemical and product compliance. So I was wondering if I could start off by asking you, what are the origins of laws relating to chemicals that go into products, and why does a supply chain compliance practitioner need to be aware of them? No, that's a really good question. And Understanding the origin of these laws also gives you a very strong baseline in making decisions on if the law themselves or guidance are clear, understanding their origins and their intentions, uh, you can actually make better decisions for your business. So there are a variety of laws which have created compliance requirements on the substances used in products. When I say in products, I'm mostly focusing on uh, products which are not, you know, substances or mixtures, you know, things that are, you know, durable goods, in essence. And most of the origin, if you want to look at some examples, would be um, protecting the environment um, and people and animals from harm of chemicals. Now, a lot of those laws, because of that, actually have come from waste laws. We use an example like the European Union's ROHS directive, which is focused on electronics. It's 
not about trying to reduce exposure of hazardous chemicals in the products during use. It's all about reducing exposure to those electronic products when they're being recycled or recovered during the waste process because they found, hey, if you don't put these products in landfill, they want to recover them, take all the nice uh, materials from there and recover the materials and electronics, they found the workers were exposed to hazardous substances. So the way to uh, mitigate that exposure is to design them out of the products themselves. Then you have a law like the, the REACH regulation, which stands for uh, Registration, Evaluation, Authorization, and Restriction of Chemicals. It's probably the most complex and largest chemical law in the world. But what it does is it has a, um, you know, it, its origin comes from there are so many different laws out there. And they've amalgamated so many laws into this one law so that there is clarity and lack of complexity for businesses and for enforcement, NGOs, and so on. And it usually takes a path of identifying which substances are used in the market. And then when there's certain risks or unacceptable levels of hazards from those substances, they will um, do activities in the law to eliminate their use in products. And, you know, we get down to, say, example, like California's Proposition 65, it actually kind of originated about chemicals getting into the, uh, the water or getting into uh, other kind of aspects like that that could cause a um, exposure to humans. But then it's really progressed to something now where it's looking at the exposure of substances used in products. So they always start kind of small or maybe they start in di very different places from where they are right now. But they're, all their intention is to either raise awareness or eliminate um, hazardous or toxic substances in products. James, in an earlier podcast, I had the opportunity to visit with Travis Miller. One of the things that Travis emphasized was that different trading blocks, different countries, different geographic areas are at different places in terms of not only their trade uh, and inter, uh, international trade maturity, but also what is significant that to them within that trade. So, for instance, you spoke about the EU ROHS directive. Uh, though uh, the environmental concerns of the EU, uh, the, uh, there may be different concerns in China. There may be different concerns in Central Africa. There may diff be different concerns in the uh, the region of Central Asia. And does that make this the different concerns and different maturity levels of trade compliance? seems to me it makes this area inherently more complex for the supply chain professional. Yeah, absolutely. And that does actually touch on the origin of it, too, where, you know, when, when these laws are eliminating the potential use uh, of substances for in products, so the manufacturing, for example, cannot use a toxic substance to produce you know, product X. What does occur in a lot of those um, instances is that there might be manufacturers for production who move them to that production to other locations where you can still maybe use that substance in the production of products and then, you know, import that product back into the market. And there's no exposure during manufacture. So it's kind of a way of getting around um, the promotion of safe substances. What a lot of those regional law or you know, I say lawmakers have done now to say, okay, if you're not going to make the products in our market because you are, because there's laws about exposing you know, the workers to certain hazardous substances and you're going to move it offshore to somewhere else, then we're going to create the same regulations that would treat the importation of those products as if they were made in 
our respective geography. And that's where you get that large complexity of the supply chain being introduced to these types of laws. So they say, okay, you didn't produce the product here, but I want you to prove that none of those substances are in the products. And in some cases, none of those substances were used in the production of those products, regardless of where you produce that, even though it's not in our country. We want that proof at the point of import or aftermarket inspections. And that's where the geographies now are, are doing a little bit of changes because maybe they used to ignore these types of uh, safety laws or chemical safety laws, but they're finding for their manufacturers, they're introducing some of these laws in their respective geographies as a competitiveness uh, reason. So if they don't create these laws to mandate the same level of protection for the, the workers or same level of protection of the substances that might be in those products, then they're finding their local manufacturers are not able to export their products to the same level of markets that they used to be. So there is this follow-on effect that does impact the different geographies when a law is introduced to protect its domestic um, concerns. They then um, ensure there's a competitive market for their domestic manufacturers by ensuring there's a level playing field and expectation on meeting certain requirements during the import of products and not just the import or manufacturing products in the domestic market. James, that really leads into the next, it uh, starts with and then leads into the next topic I wanted to explore with you. Uh, you talked about in detailed compliance with some of these laws, but how does either the compliance practitioner uh, utilize the compliance programs you've suggested to mitigate risk, or conversely, if we want to take a look at from the other angle, what about enforcement? How do the enforcement agencies literally across the world come in and, come in and make an assessment and then levy a fine or penalty if appropriate? Yeah, no, that's really important because, you know, laws in themselves are they highlight the, the goals or the expectations from the various actors that are impacted by those laws. So the only way those laws are effective is if there is active enforcement and, you know, obviously budgets for enforcement. And if the companies are meeting the expectations of enforcement, then you've achieved the goals of those laws. So when it comes to enforcement, there's a couple of ways that are, you know, we call them confident authorities or enforcement bodies, whatever you terms you need to use, which will enforce chemicals in products. One is at customs, and you might have your customs agents or customs operators who will have a checklist um, requesting information on certain products before they clear customs, be they uh, at an airport or a port. And what they'll expect is certain documentation. So depending on the laws, they might say, I want you to provide certain due diligence or certain documentation that shows you due diligence in ensuring these chemicals aren't in the product. It might be asking about what is your process? Do you have an established process in place that ensures these products or these substances aren't introduced in the product? In addition, they might actually even do spot testing where they'll use certain analytical techniques or analytical laboratory techniques where they um, maybe assess the risk of certain substances being in products. And then with that, they'll ask the actual importer, what documentation do they have to prove those substances aren't in the you know, product or even the piece, uh, material or subcomponent of that product. And, you know, a lot of the customs and uh, people at the customs, they're going through the checklist. So if you're not able to provide that documentation, they actually may stop you from entering the market. So you have to have some kind of demonstration of due diligence. Otherwise, you're not checking their boxes. 
In addition, they might do aftermarket enforcement where they will target certain types of products. And it could be because of the belief that there's a risk of certain types of products or there's potentially whistleblowers where, um, you know, competitors might say, hey, we're a domestic manufacturer and this X company is importing products that are non-compliant and they're doing it cheaper because they're, you know, they're not putting the right controls in place and therefore it's putting us, a domestic manufacturer, at a disadvantage. Therefore, the enforcement bodies will go and, uh, you know, knock on the door. They're not going the door could be uh, at the uh, importers or even other manufacturers' locations. So the importer could be at their warehouse, their logistics operation. Um, it could be the distribution centers. It could be a retail location. And they are able to take a product off the shelf or, you know, open the door and say, hey, we're coming to inspect your facility. And they can go through a very similar checklist. Now, they don't kind of go always broad, but what they might do is look at, say, you know, a harmonized tariff code. They'll look at that and say, we're going to target products that fall within that tariff code when entering the market. Or they might actually look at the, the business codes. Sometimes businesses have, you know, the registration or registry codes, which identify what type of business they are, and then they'll go after that. And once they find non-compliance, they, they let everyone else know. So enforcement is happening all the time for these topics, they're just not always public. There isn't a, you know, first step of blame and shame. They will, um, that's like the last case of enforcement, but there's tons of product removal. And if they find non-compliance, there's unacceptable due diligence to uh, mitigate what they concern acceptable levels of uh, compliance, they will ask you to remove the product. So that's very, very strong is the enforcement. So to prevent that, what companies are doing is you need to have the data. And if you have a complex product, you know, say something like if you're looking at your computer right now or even something like a car or an airplane, you can imagine the amount of documentation you would need to have centralized and managed in your systems to be able to prove that every part and material within those complex products do not have certain substances in the product. And, and that's where people are using you know, systems like Ascent to you know, either uh, aggregate, collect all that data and roll up, you know, what is the status of this product with this respective, you know, regulation that eliminates the use of certain substances in the product. You know, past experience, I've had that where enforcement bodies will just say, hey, looking at your product, I want you to provide some level of documentation that shows that this screw, this resistor, and this case do not have the substances under uh, Article 33 under REACH regulation and substances restricted under ROS directive, just like that. And I was able to take documentation out of my system, show them that it's I made the decision from strong supplier communication that they've done their own analysis or maybe test reports that the substances aren't in the product, and then they walk away. We're okay. In other cases, I've made interpretation of the laws and try to push back on the questions themselves. And that actually just caused a lot more questions on their side and caused a lot of disruption for me because then they start asking more and more questions. And once you start peeling back the onion and you're trying to explain why you're doing something or why you're not doing something, they just start actually putting your products on hold. So that's why it's so important to have documentation that demonstrates the compliance of your products with respect to chemicals and products laws readily available. 
Um, it has to be documentation that has been reviewed for its quality and trustworthiness, because that is also one of the questions they ask. And if you have that and you have a consistent process in place that you know is meeting all that due diligence expectations, then you'll be presumed to comply with these laws. It, it's almost impossible for um, an enforcement body to do specific analytical tests to extract the presence of all these various crazy inorganic substances or organic substances that are in a product and as complex as the products I described earlier. So that's why you need to have that documentation. You need to prove to them you've done an adequate um, risk assessment and you've evaluated that your products do meet the requirements and you're, you're a good actor. James, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time, but this has just been a fascinating exploration. You have never heard me talk, but I always say the three most important things about any compliance program are document, document, document. So I could not have asked you for a better way to end this podcast series. Thank you again for taking the time to visit with me, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. No problem, Tom. It's a pleasure. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this five-part series on market access sponsored by Ascent Compliance. It's certainly been a great overview of access to markets for companies, how the supply chain professional relates to that, and what it means for your compliance program going forward. For more information on Ascent, check out their website, www.ascentcompliance.com. Finally, this has been a special presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.